Hello and welcome to Not If I Reboot You First, a podcast where we take our favorite properties and reboot them before Hollywood gets the chance to. It's a little bit like brainstorming fanfiction. I'm Lindsay and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Tanner, they, them. Uh, this week, we're, if I remember correctly, we're getting a little Shakespearean? Yes. Uh, specifically a Shakespeare continu- or continuation show? A Shakespeare sequel. Yeah, a Shakespeare sequel. So, has anybody here heard of Still Star-Crossed? I, I vaguely recall an old Shondaland show on the ABC. Yep. From 2017, it got seven whole episodes before being cancelled. Now, okay, but, but was that... Was it supposed to be seven episodes, or did it get, like, the plug pulled halfway through? It seems that it got the plug pulled. Um, it suffered from low ratings, and it didn't help that it came out during the summer. And, yeah, it just seems like high production cost plus bad slot. Yeah. Yeah, summer shows are weird. Yeah. Like, whenever a summer show gets, like, multiple seasons, it's kind of a headline thing. Mm-hmm. Or, well, on on the the big five networks. If it's, like, if it's on an HBO, of course, it's going to get multiple stuff because HBO doesn't follow the normal um, air broadcasting schedule. Yeah. But stuff that airs outside of the, like, the September to May or June schedule, it's yeah. kind of filler almost. Yeah, and I guess the reasoning behind it is, like, most people are on vacation, the kids are going to be outside more often, don't know what teenagers would were, would be doing. Um, I guess, like, I don't know, maybe the one way to succeed as a summer show is if you air in the evening when people are at home, but even then that's not guaranteed. Yeah. See, it really is, what what happens quite often is that these summer shows is they were made for the normal broadcast schedule, and then other shows just kept preempting them, like, for the longest, it, I mean, it's still kind of this way now, but for the longest time what would happen is uh, a network would order, like, more pilots than their schedule had room for. Yeah. So that they could start, like, or they'd order all these pilots and they'd bring them all to series, and so all these series would be filming, and then they'd start the series going, and if one of them wasn't doing really well, then they could cut it three episodes in, and then wait a week, and then put something else in its place. And then sometimes, these shows are held until mid-season. So then they only get like a 13-episode first season, but there's a lot of shows that went on to have great runs, and that were mid-season premieres. Like, Buffy was a mid-season, Castle was a mid-season. But then, if the shows that started or the shows that were in mid-season keep going and keep going strong, then these other shows that have filmed their season and they're sitting on the bench waiting to air, and then they don't get to air until the summer. And so it's like, we we had the least faith in you, so we've kind of pushed you off into the months where you're not going to do very well to begin with. Yeah. You're at an uphill battle. And I can also tell that this was plugged halfway through, basically, because they ended on a fucking cliffhanger. Oh, snap. Well, this came out uh, 2016-2017, and that was kind of the time where shows started having smaller seasons to begin with. Yeah. But Seven's still a pretty small episode count. Mm -hmm. That's, like, miniseries territory. Yeah. And I don't think this was meant to be a miniseries. Yeah. So, anyway, on to the premise. Um, Basically... 
This is a show that takes place in the aftermath of the end of Romeo and Juliet. Everybody knows that ending because, well, it's a play that's been around since the 1590s, so. They kill each other and it's sad. Yeah. Oh, Romeo, if only you had waited five fucking minutes. <laughs> Literally, Juliet was going to wake up in like a... Fuck, if Friar Lawrence had said, had just like, stopped Romeo, and been like, just wait a bit, she's not dead, she's going to be up soon. <laughs> but, but Friar Lawrence is a messy bitch who lives for drama. Yeah. <laughs> Like, funnily enough, I think that um, Alexander Dumas-Père had read Romeo and Juliet because he included a similar plotline near the end of The Count of Monte Cristo, where uh, Valentine takes a potion that makes her sleep for a bit and it looks like she's dead. And her love interest is like, oh no, she's dead! And the Count is like, hold up, no, no more tears, she's just sleeping. (laughs) The Count of Monte Cristo was like, hang on. No more tears left to cry. Yeah. <laughs> we this is This is after the Count had, like, crescendoed his revenge plot. So he was like, okay, I'm good now. <laughs> Got it all out of my system. <laughs> yeah. So, basically, in the blast radius that was Romeo and Juliet's death, the Prince of Verona uh, decides, okay, we're going to stop this Montague Capulet feud by having the remaining heirs, who happen to be Benvolio for House Montague and Rosaline for Capulet, get married. Marriage. So we shall end this. And then Shonda Rhine's shenanigans ensue. See, she really only produced it. She didn't write any of it. Yeah. Uh, it was created by Heather Mitchell. Okay. And then about seven different executive producers, because that's how it'd be sometimes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it looks like Heather Mitchell was the showrunner. Okay. Um, and I remember when the show was first like announced and the trailer came out that it got some good press because the majority of the cast is black. Yeah. Um, and then of course it was languishing on the shelf waiting for ABC to decide to air it. So by the time it did, everyone's like, "Oh, okay, moving yeah. on." I didn't get around to watching this when it did air because I was in the middle of moving. <laughs> Yeah, I feel I feel like you watching it wouldn't have made much of a difference. Yeah, that's true. Oh, we we're not going to renew the show. It's not getting enough numbers in fucking Ottawa. <laughs> yeah, people in Ottawa have better things to do than watch TV. It's <laughs> called fucking drink. Basically, yeah, it kind of got screwed over and there wasn't enough confidence in it and anyway, my idea is like, hey, let's reboot this. Let's also like keep this uh, fairly diverse cast. Yeah. And just explore what happens afterwards. And I was doing a bit of research, trying to estimate, like, about what time period they were thinking about setting it. It's, like, clearly Renaissance Italy, because Shakespeare, as far as we know, because the problem with Shakespeare is that we don't have, like, his personal documents outlying his authorial intent about stuff, (laughs) so we have to guess. But given that he said a whole bunch of his plays in Italy, he was a big Italy fanboy. Shakespeare really likes the concept of Italy. Yeah. Though it should be said that um, Italy, at the time of Elizabethan England, was kind of like the Florida of Europe. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know that whole plot point early on in Romeo and Juliet, where like Juliet gets uh, engaged to Paris, and she's like, 
14 and he's clearly in his like mid 20s yes well okay child marriage was not okay in europe but it did happen technically it was more like you would get two children together and marry them as a way of dibsing an alliance yeah it's still gross yeah well the expectation was that they weren't gonna like actually do it until they were about 20 Oh, yeah, the the husband is definitely going to wait. There was no expectation about the husband's fidelity. But it was like... All these husbands are good Christians, and they'll (laughs) definitely wait. But yeah, I I should also say that that was something that happened more with royalty as a way of saying, hey, this alliance is ours, don't fuck with it. Like, Spain marries a a Spanish uh, prince marries a French princess... And it's like, hey, you can't have her because this thing, otherwise you're going to cause a lot of trouble. And yeah. Well, the royals only fucked outside their own bloodline when it got them something. (laughs) Just looks at Charles II of Spain. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) We screwed up. And even then, most people knew you don't fuck your cousin that much. Only a little, not that much. Like, you had to get permission from the Pope to fuck your cousin. (laughs) I have it on papal authority. (laughs) Anyway, this is Italy. Things get even more crazy because we're talking about a whole bunch of city-states, especially up north past Rome. And a whole bunch of people are big mad at each other for various reasons. And then you have... The Holy Roman Empire, France, and Spain, who are like, hey, we got territorial claims here too, and also sometimes we like the Pope, sometimes we don't. Looking at you, Rodrigo Borgia, aka Pope Alexander, who whose entire papacy was basically one big fuck fest. Uh, <laughs> so this week we're rebooting the young Pope. <laughs> it's called the Borgias. They actually did get a TV series. <laughs> Uh, that was that was a period piece, young Pope. <laughs> yeah, and like, okay, IRL Verona was actually part of uh it was at times part of Venice, which was a republic who had an elected Doge or Doge, if you want to get memeified. <laughs> it was a what? So the title of the leader of uh, Venice was called the Doge, but it's spelled D-O-G-E. Okay, and then all of his attendants were <laughs> referred to as the puppers. <laughs> yes. Um, so at other times, Verona was part of the Holy Roman Empire for, well, it's honestly not that far from the Alps, so it's just like, get over the mountains. It's ours now. But this is like fictional blah 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 yada yada yada. So the basic plot the prince wants these two families to stop fighting because he realized how much he fucked up. So Escalus is like, Rosaline and Benvolio will marry. But then more scandals happen because just people cannot let the shit go. Also, Paris is alive. He kind of got stabbed near the end of the play. <laughs> no biggie. Yeah, he recovers. And he's stepping Rosaline's sister. Oh, what is her name? I forgot her name. Livia. Yeah. And he has plans. He has plans for Verona. 
So they get to the betrothal ceremony in episode four, where they get attacked by a dude who is part of the fiends. Oh this. yeah, that was the other thing. I, I, I briefly glanced <laughs> over the summary, and like in addition to the, the sequel hookups happening in this, there's also a secret terrorist cell. Yeah, because as it turns out, um, Paris is somehow related to the ruling family of Mantua, the de- or at the time, uh, Marquiana State, later the Duchy of Mantua, so he's technically part of the Gonzaga family. Um, I guess, but they never actually say that, and he, I guess he's a younger son, and he's pulling up Prince Hans, and is like, I need a place to rule myself, or add to the territories of Mantua, because the Gonzagas were always, like, this close to dying off. So, yeah, he's all backing the fiends, and then Benvolio gets accused of kidnapping Rosaline, and, uh, because he goes to find Friar Lawrence to, you know, help with this situation and clear a whole bunch of information up. But then Benvolio also gets accused of Paris's crimes and attempted murder because there's an attempted assassination on Iscalus, and yeah. Things be crazy, and then the show stopped. Yeah. Yeah. So the general plan is just to continue probably what the plan was for season one with the idea of like having this be a complete season that if it should not get renewed it we has can an end. ending <laughs> it has an ending <laughs> it doesn't just stop <laughs> but if we continue you know what fuck it it's shakespeare but it's also assassin's creed <laughs> <laughs> i mean why the fuck not throw in a bit of the borgias too because they do cover the one time louis the 12th of france invaded uh invaded italy because he has a claim to the duchy of milan also all the uh all the episode titles are references to other shakespeare plays yes so we, we could easily make this the the shakespeare telecinematic universe mm-hmm Hell, we could throw in, like, some of the Merchant of Venice, some of Much Ado About Nothing, which is down in Sicily. Two Gentlemen of Verona. Yeah. The Ghost of Titus Andronicus. (laughs) Some sort of reference to Coriolanus. (laughs) Fuck, they're always probably gonna talk about, like, Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire, because everybody at the time in the educated classes were big old classics nerds. The the mid-season finale is the, the reveal that everything that's been going on is just Puck fucking with people again. <laughs> and then and then the season finale in which So from what I from what I've gleaned, so the season finale, we could have Paris trying to cement his rule over Verona, and then at the last second, Prospero shows back up again. <laughs> Wait, what was Prospero in charge of? Because he was a duke of something. He shows up in Verona and he smacks Paris over the head with his magic stick and says, get the fuck out of my throne. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, he looks like Yensid from the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Oh yeah, he does. Ah, Prospero was the Duke of Milan, which is like right nearby. Also, an- another fun fact is that the guy who played Paris, he uh, this role came immediately after he played Henry II on Reign. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, not not Henry II. He was Sebastian de Poitiers, also known as Bash, the bastard son of King Henry II. Oh, because he's yeah. a bad boy. Yeah, 
I'm edgy because my royal blood isn't legitimate. And now I'm going to brood. And also, the castle might be haunted. Yeah. And Mary, Queen of Scots, is a cyborg. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they made freaking Francis II young and, like, strong and healthy instead of, like, the very scrawny, sickly, permanently nose-dripping boy that he was. The finale, the finale of Rain had like a dance party ending in the afterlife. <laughs> yeah, which was the same ending that the Heather's TV show had. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> so okay, I know I'm a a bit penda- pedantic when it comes to historical accuracy, but at the same time, we can play around with this because like alliances were, were fucking changing all the time, places changed hands all the time. Well, and this isn't this isn't a, a historic. It's a period piece, but it's not a historical drama. Yeah. This yeah. this is a this is a, a soap opera. Yes, it really is. <laughs> it truly is. That's all the Shakespeare plays were. Yeah. He wasn't aiming for historical accuracy. Even the ones that were touted as historical accuracy, they weren't. They were just propaganda. Yeah. Well, the big boss at the time, the big sponsor at the time was Elizabeth the the First, and I don't think she would appreciate him slandering her grandfather that one back in um, Richard the Third. Yeah, but once we uh, moved on to King James, didn't he like have it? He had at least two plays that were like, you know what? I was wrong. And actually, King James's ancestors were the better rulers of England. So jot that down, common populace. Yeah, well, again, we can glean also from uh, his contemporaries that he was one of those. Um, he was kind of a blockbuster playwright, and he was very like. He seemed to have always directed his uh, plays towards the groundlings. He was kind of criticized for playing towards the crowd, as opposed to, you know, being high and intellectual and, and artistic. Like, Christopher Marlowe, even though Christopher Marlowe got himself stabbed in the fucking eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare never had to deal with that. Yeah. At least I don't think. As far as we know, he played it safe. And he ended up decently wealthy, owning land, and dying at a ripe old age. And he married Anne Hathaway. Yeah. Who then... Actually, that happened before his success. Neat. Yeah. See, I, I can't believe that no one has capitalized on the fact that he married a woman named Anne Hathaway. Where is our Shakespeare biopic where Anne Hathaway plays Anne Hathaway? <laughs> and you can see him composing the one sonnet where he's playing around with her name. Because it was basically a pun. Also, Shakespeare loved puns. So there's a bunch of scholars and Shakespearean actors who have recreated, who have not recreated, reconstructed what the London accent would have sounded at the time, because this is prior to a major vowel shift that happened in the 1600s. So as it turns out, there are even more puns and sex jokes than we thought. Yeah. Because words were just pronounced differently. (laughs) Exactly. Like if you're, if you have a good Shakespeare class in university, then the first few classes are going to be on what the words would have sounded like, like back when they were performed so that you can understand all the dirty jokes better. (laughs) Also, do you know, you know, you know who would have played Shakespeare's boy toy? Who? It's Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) (laughs) He's the fair youth. (laughs) um there was an episode of doctor who where the doctor and martha met shakespeare and martha was a big deal because she was the first black companion Mm -hmm. 
And when they met Shakespeare, he immediately started crushing on both of them, and Martha ended up being the inspiration for the Dark Lady. Yep. And and then Shakespeare did an off-the-cuff series of sonnets that, because he's so good at the English language, they had reality-warping powers, and he banished space witches into the Phantom Zone or something. Like, I love Shakespeare, and I do think that he was a very brilliant man. I don't think he was that great either. <laughs> <laughs> also, also in the latest season of Legends of Tomorrow, um, they had to meet him because he was secretly holding a piece of the Loom of Fate for Greek mythology. Okay. Um, and then they, the Legends accidentally got into a bar brawl and forgot to erase his memory. And so instead of writing... <laughs> Speaking of the Shakespeare Cinematic Universe, instead of him writing Romeo and Juliet, a tragedy where the two lovers die, he wrote Romeo v. Juliet, Dawn of Justness, (laughs) where where all the Shakespeare characters get superpowers and team up (laughs) to fight Macbeth. Oh my god. (laughs) Wait, shit, are we allowed to say Macbeth on a podcast? I mean, we're not in a play. Hang on. One, two, three. Tanner is spinning around and spat. So from now on, we'll be referring to it as the Scottish play, just yes. to be safe. Okay. I do not dare tempt the wrath of the guy from high atop the place. Yeah. Um. So yeah, basically we're trying to infer what the plot would have been and it's turned into the Shakespeare Cinematic Universe. So basically, it's just how about the first season is ends with Paris winning. Yes. Where he either kills Escalus or he chases out Escalus. Well, the the star-crossed bit is that Escalus is secretly in love with Rosaline. Yeah. Because nobody can be in happy relationships. And actually, though it does say that at the end of the last episode, Escalus does get mortally wounded by Paris. Okay. So oh no, not Paris, the fiends. By the fiends, okay. So, Escalus dies. He yes. does have a sister, Isabella, who I can see, like, taking charge because Escalus doesn't have kids. So, she's probably leading the anti-Paris... Uh, Verona faction. Yeah. And then we could have a potential... Like, we we have to have some hope at the end of this, because that's a very mm-hmm. Shakespearean thing, is even in a tragedy, there is some light at the end of the tunnel, except for King Lear. That one was yeah. straight up apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair to Shakespeare, he was, like, getting close to his own death. Yeah, K- King Lear and Pro- um, The Tempest are extremely autobiographical. Yeah. Yeah, it should be noted that Shakespeare did experience the loss of a child, and by the time he wrote those plays, he was late Middle Ages, I would say. Yeah. King Lear is about a sibling rivalry that gets so intense it destroys a country. Yeah. And that one straight up does not have a happy ending. Like, the usual happy ending in those sorts of plays, like the Scottish play, is that there is still someone who can take over and make the country good again. That's Mm kind of like a whole Fisher King trope thing that he liked. Not in King Lair. In fact, the best representation of this is Akira Kurosawa's Ron, which also means chaos. Yep. That was also based on King Lear, wasn't it? Yeah, in a roundabout way. Uh, 
So there was like a big period in Kurosawa's career where he he wasn't really making a lot of movies. And he was working on this movie idea based on an old uh, East Asian parable where like a a lord brings his sons together and he's like, I'm going to die soon. I need you guys to not fight each other over who gets what. So he demonstrates what they're supposed to do by having them like break individual arrows. So the individual is easily destroyed, broken, whatever. And then he hasn't tried to break a bundle of arrows, and it's hard to do, if not straight out impossible. So uh, Kurosawa's thinking was, what if that bundle did break? What if that foundation wasn't as strong as previously thought? And it eventually evolved, the script eventually evolved to a point where he's like, shit, I'm just writing King Lear. Yeah. I guess I'm writing a King Lear adaptation. Yep, that's how it be sometimes. Yeah. So, in this case, by episode 7, Escalus gets killed. Episode 8, we somehow get Rosaline and Isabella out of Verona. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, we have to get Benvolio out, and we have to start formulating a plan, and getting allies to save Verona from Paris. I would say, ideally, this would probably get, like, what, 13 episodes? Yeah, that's still a good number. Yeah. So that would mean six more episodes. So it's get allies, probably Venice, maybe Milan. And then it's the plan to get the city back. You might have a couple battles. Well, here's the thing is that Benvolio doesn't have to die still in episode seven. Yeah. We can we can play with things a little bit. We can stretch things out because there's a significant number of main characters that this show followed to begin with. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they all have to be main characters. Like, does Fire Lawrence have to be a regular? I don't think so. No. Does the nurse have to be a regular? Well, you never gave her a real name, so I'm going to say no. No. She can be killed off. <laughs> she doesn't have to be killed off. I'm just saying we don't have to follow her plot. Yeah. We're, we're more concerned with the, with, like, the family drama and the political dealings happening. Yeah. Oh, God, this is keeping up with the Capulets. <laughs> yeah, so... Apparently, uh, Lady Capulet uh, had been kind of secretly protecting Paris and was kind of his sponsor, and then she came to regret it because Paris is not a nice guy. No. Paris would definitely depose of anyone he no longer needs, and that includes Lady Capulet. Mm-hmm. He's the sort of person who would stab a bitch just because. Yeah. So, in Verona, you could probably have the Capulets and the Montagues you know, doing their own internal machinations to either win favor with Paris or undermine Paris. Yeah. Now, whose side would the Capulets and the Montagues be on? I don't know. But given that they're kind of aligned with Paris, I would probably see the Capulets trying to play along, but secretly doing some other stuff. And the Montagues are kind of on on the ropes. Yeah. It def- I mean, it definitely seems like the powers that be favor the Capulets more than the Montagues. Yeah, it's... Oh, and actually, it even even says that uh, the Capulets are a bankrupt aristocracy, but the Montagues are nouveau riche. Yeah. This is also the plot of The Corpse Bride. <laughs> yeah. Or at least the beginning of it. Well, a lot of that actually did happen, where, like, you have the impoverished patrician, and he's like, I need someone with fucking money. Yeah, that's true. The opening number of Corpse Bride was probably the best part of the movie. Mm-hmm. I could also see Paris doing the opposite, where he ditches the Capulets because they don't have money, but the Montagues have money. 
maybe they're like the Medici, where they have like a bank or something. They're into banking or something like that. They could be bankrupt land-rich aristocracy. <laughs> yeah, well, this is uh, Renaissance Italy. There's a whole bunch of stabbing going on. This is true. Yep. <laughs> so what episode did Romeo and Juliet come back as zombies? <laughs> That's season two. <laughs> Revenants, they're not happy. <laughs> did I... So I can't... I feel like I've said this on some podcasts, maybe not this one, but um, when I was in grade 10, I want to say 10. Yeah, when I was in grade 10, my high school did Romeo and Juliet, and even though the text was the same, we did all the set dressing and outfits, and music was punk style, because mm-hmm. what's more punk rock than Shakespeare? There was a lot of The Clash. Yeah. <laughs> um. And then this was also around the time that zombies were getting really big in pop culture. And so at some point, someone suggested, hey, what if at the end, Romeo and Juliet came back as zombies? <laughs> it's like after the curtain call and everything, like while everyone is looking at the blood on their hands because they all killed Romeo and Juliet, they resurrect and just start trying to eat everybody. <laughs> I mean, I, sh- I did a shout out to Assassin's Creed, but like, what's a video game without a zombie mode? This is true. What's a Shakespeare play without a zombie AU? <laughs> they they did it in Be More Chill with a Midsummer's Nightmare about zombies. Uh, Midsummer's Nightdream. Yeah, that is kind of a nightmare situation. We sh- we should reboot Midsummer Night's Dream and make it a little less uh, dubcon. Yeah. I know what Oberon was trying to do, but, um, drugs aren't the answer, buddy. Listen, be like everyone else and just write fan fiction. <laughs> if anything, you should have gone, I don't know, Puck to tell Helena, look, he's just not that into you. <laughs> and then tell Demetrius, look, Hermia is just not into you. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who would be playing Puck. Huh. He's got a good trickster feel to them. I mean, there's an obvious answer. <laughs> Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Timothy I mean, Chalamet. <laughs> <laughs> like, I haven't even seen anything with Timothy Chalamet in it, and I still... <laughs> Neither have I! And I'm still kind of amazed at the shit that he gets, but apparently everybody is like, oh, this is the hot new thing, and I'm like... Okay. Yeah, it's okay, so here's... I, I have no intention to see Call Me By Your Name, because the age difference there is kind of creepy. Yeah. And then I haven't seen Little Women yet. I'd like to, um, but I haven't seen it yet. And I haven't seen Later Lady Bird because here, here's my mom's re- my mom's review of Later Bird. Yeah, my mother's review of Lady Bird was this movie was amazing. Tanner, you would hate it. Ah, <laughs> you would be so bored. Okay, I might like it. At least from the commercials, it seemed to have a Juno feel to it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and I, I did like Juno. Mm-hmm. And if Juno had been made like ten years later, then Timothy Chalamet would have been the Michael Sarah. <sighs> See here, I think I, I think the Timothy it. Chalamet joke stems from the fact that, well, for one thing, every fan cast of anything has Timothy Chalamet in it. Yeah, because he's the hot teeny bopper idol. 
Okay, so it's more of a Tiger Beat situation. It's almost like it's very shit. much Tiger Beat. <laughs> and anyways, I think I think the other fact is that yeah, even though Timothy Chalamet is kind of being uh, propped up by the Hollywood hype machine, he really hasn't been in much except for those three things. Yeah, it's way too early to say. Oh right, he's he's, he's going to be playing Kyle MacLachlan in Dune. Huh. Well, we'll see how that goes. Like, I have every confidence in uh, Denis Villeneuve to at least create something that is aesthetically very interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to look at. Will will the film be good? Who knows? Yeah, it's a pretty tough book to adapt from all the attempts. But we're not talking about Dune. I think we're still (laughs) technically talking about Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah, so season one, it's just like, okay, how do we deal with a problem like Paris? Season two, managed to get back Verona. I don't know if Paris is still going to be alive. Well, like, season one can still end with Paris assuming control over Verona, and then season two is the fight to get it back. Yeah. And they try to get allies, and so they could potentially go to Milan, and this takes place while Prospero is in exile. Yeah, so that would be his brother... So here's the thing is that any surrounding Italian city-states they go to, they're also probably going to have not great leadership. Like, if you go to Venice, the vil- the villain of Merchant of Venice is Portia. Yeah. I mean, the the villain is also, you know, in a broader sense, it's society. But also, yeah. my, my Shakespeare teacher was very much a fan of the interpretation that Portia was just out to destroy everyone's life in order to get ahead in her own. Yeah. Well, depending on when we set this, we could actually bring in a couple of historical characters. So, maybe Federico de Monteveltro. He was the Duke of Urbino. He was uh, what's called a condierto. So, yeah, they're mercenary leaders. Um, because, also, this is during the time that like Niccolo Machiavelli wrote uh, The Prince. Where he railed against the use of mercenaries because he's like, this is gonna be okay. The actual term is a uh, condottierto. Yeah, a, a bunch of these princely states had mercenary armies that they would hire out to other other places, and one of those was uh, the Duchy of Urbino, led by uh, Federico de Montefeltro. And the cool thing about Federico de Montefeltro is that he was so good at being a military leader that eventually all the other city-states would pay him not to fight. So (laughs) So he's making money hand over fist to stay out of conflicts, and he's he's reinvesting that money into the arts and sciences and improving the city of Urbino, because he was all about the... All about the Renaissance. Nice. I think he would be a really cool character to involve. Not just because I'm a fangirl. Though I am a fangirl. (laughs) (laughs) I have to get my timelines right if we're going to involve some historical characters. So, Okay, so they do overlap. So if we say have the play, have the show take place roughly in, say, the 1570s. Then we could have both of them in the play, in the okay. show. Why do I keep on saying play? Oh yeah, it's based well, on the play. Yeah, Shakespeare, of course you're going to make that mistake. <laughs> but also, we could, like, this is something where we can definitely fudge numbers. Yeah. Like, even you said you're not as much of a stickler. Yeah, well, this is already in a fictional universe. Exactly. But it's just like, I'd like to have these characters involved. Also, uh, Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander IV, would still be a colonel. Or we could still make him a pope. I don't really care. 
<laughs> we could invent a new pope. Yeah. <laughs> the young pope. <laughs> the new young pope. <laughs> Unfortunately, we probably couldn't afford Jude Law either. Okay, <laughs> J- Jude Law's in his 40s, and I know that's not like super old, but when you call something the young pope, I expect someone who's extremely young. Well, that's because there hasn't been a pope under the age of, like, 50 in uh, several hundred years. So once Paris is deposed as ruler of Verona, he decides, fine, I'm going to aim for the papacy. (laughs) I mean, when, when John Paul II became pope back in the 70s, it was kind of a shock because, well, also he wasn't an Italian. He was the first, like, non-Italian in, again, several hundred years to become pope. But also he was, I think, in his 50s by that point. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to hold another papal conclave for, like, more than 10 years. Please? Mm. Yeah, that does make sense. <laughs> yeah. And those things take a while to, you know, organize and then have, and they can take a couple of weeks. Yeah. See, I have neither watched The Young Pope nor the follow-up The New Pope, mm-hmm. so I don't know if New Pope ends on, like, a sequel hook where they're gonna get another new uh, episode for A New Pope. <laughs> <laughs> What well, what would be the the final in the trilo- the pope the, the pope trilogy on HBO? <laughs> the young pope, the new pope, Ghost the pope. return of the pope, <laughs> the, of the, the young pope. He's back and he's younger than ever. Girl pope. <laughs> Hashtag girl pope. Absolute ruler over a square mile of Rome. This is the future liberals want, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, so in general, it's almost like last week's episode where it will eventually start writing itself. (laughs) I mean, in this case, we have other stuff we can draw from if we're using other Shakespeare things as a background. Yeah, probably more to, we should focus more on the stuff that is set in Italy because like, oh yeah, they would be right there. Yeah. And And the histories are... Something that, um, yeah, that happened elsewhere. Yeah, they're they're very, and like a lot of stuff is very nebulous, and we can play with both the fictional aspects coming from the Shakespeare things and the actual historical events that happened. Mm-hmm. But truly, this is, it's like a, it is like a period piece political drama, except we have carte blanche to do whatever we want. We yeah. are not beholden to actual events because these are not actual events. Mm-hmm. We can do shoutouts, we can do references, we can have historical people show up, but it's basically Assassin's Creed. Yeah, we can also just straight up have the fairies show up. Yeah, because like Oberon and Titania are constantly on the move. Yeah, that th- that could that could be the stinger is like like all this drama is happening and like the the Rever- Verona rebellion has to seek out help elsewhere and then like cuts to a forest and Oberon's sitting there watching everything is like this isn't going anywhere the way I hoped. Puck, get take take flower. And go make things better. I'm a fairy. I I know how this works. Yeah, because your score is so good, Oberon. You know what? Maybe maybe we do need to do... I, sh- I should make a note on the list for doing a Midsummer Night's Dream, but like a 10 Things I Hate About You update on it. Yeah. So that it's not as creepy. Yeah, and I kind of wish that my one high school teacher who had us read A Midsummer's Night Dream had told us about original pronunciation. Because... More sex jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. We're not saying Midsummer Night's Dream can't be horny. Just make sure it's consensual horniness. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's definitely the horniest play out of Shakespeare's canon. Much Ado comes close. Yeah. But it's all, Much Ado is all edging. <laughs> it's all foreplay. <laughs> yeah. And then depending on your interpretation, Taming of the Shrew was just one very long, elaborate dom-sub relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, if you're gonna watch any version, watch the version that has Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor when they were married. Because it's... But was it, wasn't that the one where their, like, their marriage was on the rocks and that's why they were cast? Yeah. <laughs> That's the best version. <laughs> That's kind of shady. I know, but... <laughs> so the casting director's like, we need to channel this authentic divorced energy. <laughs> I mean, I can't remember in the Elizabeth Taylor marriage timeline if this was marriage number one or number two to Richard Burton. <laughs> 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 no, just just watch Ten Things I Hate About You. It's great. It's got it's got Heath. It's got Julia Stiles. Yeah, it's got Julia Stiles f- flashing a teacher for love. <laughs> it's got Allison Janney writing a sex novel and getting advice from her students. <laughs> I forgot that scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's got Heath Ledger belting out, "Can't keep my eyes off you." <laughs> Yeah, and getting chased by school security. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, political drama, historical period piece, soap opera. It's the Tudors all over again. <laughs> Hell, let's move it on to, like, AMC or somewhere where we can have a bit more fun with it. This could definitely get onto an HBO. Yeah. See, it's 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 like Game of Thrones, but we've replaced a majority of the fantasy elements in bad writing with <laughs> what amounts to sex in the city. Yeah. Except it's the city is Verona. Yeah. And something of a plan. Like, eventually, Rosaline and Benvolio will get together. They will be happy, and Verona will be free. Oh, that's right. Well, yeah, that's true. I was going to say that doesn't Rosaline love Aeschylus, but I forgot we stabbed him. Yeah. These things happen. Yeah. And look, sometimes love triangles, like, I'm all for a thruple, but sometimes the hypotenuse has got to go. We, we've we been trying very hard, but your political machinations just do not mesh with the rest of our chemistry, and so we're voting you out of the polycule. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so unless there's anything you can add, I think we have reached the end of this script. Yeah. So in that case, uh, let us now move our scene to a friendship promo. Was that a segue? Yeah, I'll count it as a segue. Listen, I can't do iambic pentameter off the cuff. Yeah. Anyway, exit pursued by a bear. <laughs> 
Hello, you beautiful blood-sucking babes. I'm Sahana. And I'm Kat. And we're the hosts of Summer Twilight Book Club, a podcast where two dumb bitches with social work degrees reread the four horniest books of their teenage years. If you're at all curious about any of the following, this is the podcast for you. Does Bella Swan have a car crash fetish? Yes. I am telling you right now, the answer is yes. Does Stephanie Meyer understand healthy relationship boundaries? Has Bella Swan ever had a secure attachment in her life? How has Twilight impacted the societal and my personal conceptions of romance? Why does Stephanie Meyer Osahana and all other brown people reparations? Why is Edward Cullen so into edging? You can find Summer Twilight Book Club at theorangegirls.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you access podcasts to find out. I do love the one version of Exit Pursued by a Bear. Where, um, so, fun historical fact, the Globe Theater used to be near Bear Baiting Pit, which is super problematic, but the Elizabethans said we were tasting entertainment. So one of the owners, had, who was also, like, a co-owner of the Globe, managed to get his hands on a polar bear cub, didn't know what exactly to do with it, so... <laughs> Shakespeare is putting on <laughs> freaking uh, A Winter's Tale, and there's the famous line, exit pursued by a bear. So in the staging of it, they would have the main villain exit pursued by a bear, and you would see this tiny little cub chase after him. <laughs> with, with the big waddly steps, because they don't know how the legs work yet. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's very sad for the bear, but I'm sure it looked cute. Plus, I think... <laughs> Like, that villain is supposed to be one of the shittier villains anyway, in the sense that he, he's just an utter bastard. He's, you're, he's not even impressive. Yeah. And so it really does help hammer home the fact that he's just a massive coward. He's running away from this little polar bear cub. Yeah. He's no me, Iago. Yeah. So, anyways. Lindsay, where can people find you on the internet? I can be found at lindsaym476 on Twitter, and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there. Tanner, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at SparkyUpstart and Instagram at SparkyYoungUpstart. And you can also find this very podcast on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for Not If I Reboot You First, and they're pronounced Strike Drum. That's, that's a line from the play. <laughs> you can also email us at notifireboutyoufirst at gmail.com, or you can send us your comics, critiques, criticisms, and your Shakespeare OTP. You could even ask to be a guest, but if you do, make sure you send us a hint instead of the entire idea because we like being surprised. Or if you would like to get your friendship promo on this in the form of either an actual audio clip from you and your podcast or just a proof that you want us to read off like we did last week, then you can send us those through the email as well. Uh, we have a podcast where you can support us financially, but we still are reminding people that there are much more important things to support financially, to donate to local bail fund, donate to food banks, donate to, uh, oh, what else? There, there's so many charities, and if a quick Google can find you plenty of stuff that supports the protests and supports people's GoFundMes for medical stuff and transitioning and all manner of things. There's, there, there are people who need the money more than us. We're fine. The Patreon was a cool idea to get a little bit more support, but we can go on for a long time without having to worry about other people. So put your money where to people who actually need it. Yeah. Uh, but if you do want to support the podcast, then it really helps if you rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you can't find us on your podcatcher of choice, then let us know and I'll try and get us in there. Not If I Reboot You First is a member of the Corner Podcast Network, and you can find out more about the other awesome shows we share the network with at CornerPodNet on Twitter. 
And last but not least, our cover art, as always, is by Alex, aka Pachu, and her work can be found on ptchew.com. And our theme music is done by our friend Sean Clake, and you can contact us to find out how to contact him if you'd like music of his own for your own. So, what do we have for next week? Uh, next week, okay, so I've mentioned to you off the podcast that I have shifted my hyper-focusing onto DC Stargirl. Yeah. And it's a really good show, and I recommend everybody check it out. But as I was thinking on it, I was thinking about what would be the Marvel equivalent of that. So next week, I will be doing uh, something that also focuses on themes of being a teenager and being a superhero and having a whole legacy behind you. But I really do feel that Marvel's answer to Stargirl is actually Marvel's answer to the Teen Titans. Oh. And it's not who you think it is. Oh. But we'll be getting into that next week. Not... If we reboot you first. Bye.